we are we are beginning the last half really we're in the last half of our our study in why we do what we do when we get together and today um, if you remember me mentioning it we are talking about why we remember why we remember the Lord's Supper and so we're gonna we're gonna explain it I'm gonna talk about it a show from scripture some things about it and then we're going to participate in it together today to preface it i'm going to use the terms lord's supper and communion interchangeably so i I mean the same thing Uh, as as baptists we believe certain things about the lord's supper certain teachings about it um, but also we reject certain teachings about it and so we're going to hone in on some of those things today with the continued hope of clarifying why we do the things that we do when we get together when we gather, why we do them. And there most certainly is a together aspect of communion, the Lord's Supper, that I'm convinced that we need to recover and recapture and participate in cheerfully. And I hope that we can begin that today. Now, in really in just passing, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. This is not the focus of what we want to talk about today. But let me just say a couple of things about the elements and the frequency of the Lord's Supper. Because these tend to get probably blown out of proportion, in my opinion. Um, but firstly, there's really nothing in Scripture that commands how often we take the Lord's Supper. Uh, there's, there's some verses in the book of Acts where the early church gathers, and there's some evidence that they probably did it a lot of times every time they gathered. The first day of the, the week, that's when they celebrated. And so there's some precedent there, but it's not a command. We're not sinning to not take the Lord's Supper every time we gather. Also, there's nothing commanded about what is in the cup and what kind of bread we use, right? Again, there's examples of what happened. Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with the disciples. That was a Passover meal. At the first Passover, the uh, Israelites were told to make unleavened bread. So there's some evidence that There's unleavened bread that was at the Passover. Uh, The fruit of the vine is how it's described as far as what's in the cup. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's one verse that talks about this in each one. And it just calls it the fruit of the vine. So whether it's actual fermented grape juice and wine or whether it's just the grape juice that we have, I don't think there needs to be any argument about this. It's all fruit of the vine. Okay? Um, And so I don't want to make a big deal out of those things. We tend to take the Lord's Supper more, it's not every week, but it's not every quarter, it's every other month, and we have started trying to coincide our time with the Lord's Supper um, to precede our members' meetings. So on the Sundays that we have members' meetings, we hope to have the Lord's Supper together with the intent of reminding us of the community that we are, the people that we are in Christ. And so... That's kind of where we go with those things. So those are peripheral, secondary issues with this in my book. Today I want to get into some deeper things. And to do that, I want to start with some history. Who's, who's a history buff out here? All right, I'm, I'm looking at you guys today. Okay, the year is 1555. So just a few years ago. Okay, <laughs> I'm sure you remember it well. Uh, 1555 in England. Who's on the throne? Anybody remember? I did not. Full disclosure. I looked it up. 
Queen Mary, do you remember her nickname? Bloody Mary, right? So 1555 in England, Bloody Mary is on the throne. Between There's three years between 1555 and 1558. And Queen Mary put to death at least 288 Christians, burned them at the stake. In this group, there was an archbishop, four bishops, 21 clergymen, 55 women, and four children that were killed, that were martyred. Why? Why were these people young and old? Why were they burned at the stake like this? One reason that we're given because of their belief about the Lord's Supper. A guy named J.C. Ryle, I'll quote him again in a few minutes, but he says about this, he says, the doctrine in question was the real presence of the body and blood of Christ in the consecrated elements of bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. Did they or did they not believe that the real body of Christ was present on the altar as soon as the mystical words had passed the lips of the priest? Did they or did they not? That was the simple question. If they did not believe it and admit it, they were burned. That's what happened. That's the reason why. I mentioned this, the martyrdom of these Christians, these boys and girls, these men and women, to remind us of something that I think we probably have forgotten. There was a time when the ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, These things carried a weight of meaning that they don't today, that we don't get, that we don't understand. These things were very important, important enough for some people to die for and for some people to kill for. You'll probably remember from just other world history that the church and the state were married together very closely at times uh, to pretty obvious faults. Politics, religion, these things were melded together so much so that when people took action to obey scripture, the state would push back, sometimes in very forceful, sometimes in very bloody and violent ways. Kings and queens in England fought over whether it was going to be a Catholic nation or a Christian Protestant nation. And because of this turmoil, asking serious questions of Roman Catholic doctrine was seen as an attack, not just on religion, but an attack on the crown, right? So they were so married together so closely that it was an attack on the crown. And so there seemed, as we see from this quote about this situation with the martyrs in England, we see that there's almost no more of a serious attack on the crown in England than to reject what was at the heart of the Catholic mass, And that's a big, long word called transubstantiation. Whether you've heard that word or not, basically it's this. Roman Catholics held and still hold to the belief tightly that the bread and the wine actually turn into the real, physical, material presence of the body and blood of Christ at communion. And you'll see that in Catholic masses even today. They believe that the consecrating words of the priest have the power to turn these elements into something special, something that people were required to obtain in order to find peace with God and forgiveness of their sins. The Protestant reformers saw this, and this is why we have the Reformation. 
They saw it and they believed that this idea and belief undermined the truth of Christ crucified once for all for our sin. And so they took strong action, and you see that in world history. J.C. Ryle, who I quoted before, he was an English evangelical Anglican bishop. So he was tied sort of closely with Roman Catholicism in the 1800s, and he described the Protestant conviction this way. He says, A sacrifice that needs to be repeated is not a perfect and complete thing. You spoil the priestly office of Christ. If there are priests that can offer an acceptable sacrifice to God besides Jesus, the great high priest is robbed of his glory. You overthrow the true doctrine of Christ's human nature. If the body born of the Virgin Mary can be in more places than one at the same time, it's not a body like our own, and Jesus was not the last Adam in the truth of our nature. As Baptists, then, we disagree with the notion and the conviction that the bread and the wine turn into something more when we take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is weighty. You understand what I mean when I say that? It's weighty. It's important. It has rich meaning and that it shouldn't be just assumed or taken for granted. Men, women, and even children have died for their belief and practice of it. So instead of thinking, which may be our tendency, may not, but instead of thinking, man, what's the big deal? I hope that we can humble ourselves and realize that while we do enjoy a measure of freedom of religion in this country, I think we also in that have lost a sense of the weight and wonder of what Christ has given us in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And so I want to explain what our understanding of the Lord's Supper is not first off, but I don't want to major on that because I think as believers, we, we should be known for what we believe, not what we believe against. Do you see what I'm saying? Not a list of rules of all these don'ts, but what, what does God give us to do? That's what we want to be known for. And so, but we, we need to talk about that aspect of it. And then we'll mo- move into the celebration portion of the Lord's Supper. And I'm excited to do that. But before we go any further, before we read scripture, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, our hearts uh, need to feel the weight of this. But that's not the only thing we need to feel about this. Maybe we start there today. We recognize the great sacrifices that have been given just about this doctrine alone. But we know, Lord, from your example, from your words, that this is something that we remember with with joy. And so I pray as as we talk about these things this morning that we would feel the weight of it, Lord, but we would also recognize the beautiful picture that this is. Be with us as we read your word. In Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. I'm not going to read this whole section for sake of time, but you're probably familiar with it. Verse 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm not sure if you can pick up the tone in the first part of these verses, but Paul is not pleased. Right? This, is, this is not a pleasant thing he's writing to the church at Corinth. Uh, they, this was a church body that was just riddled with all kinds of issues. By the time we get to chapter 11, he's already talked to them about a bunch of stuff. You can look back in chapters 1 and 3. He's talking to them about the fights and the quarrels and the divisions that are among them in the church. In chapter 3, he's talking about uh, just correcting their pride in their own wisdom. Chapter 5, there's blatant sexual immorality in the church. And not just that, but they're, they're proud of their acceptance of it. And Paul is just blasting them about it. In chapter 6, he's on them about suing one another and taking each other to court. In chapter 8, he's talking about wounding a brother's conscience without care. So Paul is already talking to them about the problems that he sees in the church, and he doesn't hold back when he's talking to them about the Lord's Supper either. There's division when they get together. There's gluttony in some of the people. There's hunger in some of the others. And there's people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Imagine that for just a moment happening. Imagine that happening in a church. In so many ways, this church was just in chaos. I mean, just fleshly disarray. Like the flesh was just ruling so often in the people of this church. And Paul's response to this, I I laughed out loud as I was reading it this week because it reminded me so much of my response at times to stuff my kids do, right? Have you, parents, you've probably been here. You get a report of something that your child has done and it's just ridiculous. Like you're thinking, whose kid is this? Why on earth would they make this decision? Why could they do this? And that's, that's how I read this, Paul's response to the church here. I mean, look at, look at what he says. He says, what? Some of you are getting drunk. What? What am I going to do with you? Parents, you ever said that? What am I, what can I say to you right now? Should I, am I proud of you? Should I commend you in this? Paul says, no, no, I, I can't. I won't. He can't commend them in this. So instead, as a good teacher and pastor that Paul is, he teaches them a better way here. Now, this text also holds a reason why we don't hold to the supposed truth of transubstantiation, the concept there. And I think it boils down to one word, representation. Representation. What do I mean by this. Go ahead, Abigail, and go to the next slide. I want you guys to see this. Look at this adorable child. <laughs> this, of course, this is, this is Monroe. Uh, this is my son. Does that comment strike you as odd? That I would say, point at this screen and say, this is my son. No. We get this. When, when you share your vacation photos, most of the time, and now today, we're showing people on our phones, right? Look at this picture I got of this whale or whatever it is, okay? But when you, when you hold up a picture on your phone and you show it to somebody, you say, this is my grandchild. Your phone is not the grandkid, right? Your grandchild is not there. 
this TV screen that my son's picture on is not my son. But when I say, this is my son, you guys get what I mean. Okay? You understand what I'm saying. This is the idea of representation. This picture represents my son. When Jesus says, this is my body, he means this represents my body. This photo doesn't somehow literally become my son just because I said so. And the bread and the wine don't literally become Jesus' flesh and blood simply because someone says so. Those who believe this sort of thing, though, they go back to the book of John in John chapter 6. So go ahead and turn back to John chapter 6. We want to look at this a little bit further. This is a long chapter in the book of John. We're not going to look at all of it. We're going to look at verses 33 through 42. So remember, what had just happened? Some context here before we just jump in and read. You can look back at some of the sub, subheadings in your Bible. Um, we see that just before Jesus has this conversation, he had just fed 5,000 plus, probably a lot more than that. He just fed this many people. He, the disciples had just seen him uh, walking on water. And then people come to him in this text and they start following him around. And we get here and Jesus basically says, you're only following me because your bellies are full from the bread. So bread is already on their mind. And so Jesus uses that to teach them. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that comes, came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? Okay, let's pause there. You know what I find really interesting about this? The first thing that jumped out to me was the Jews' response. The people that Jesus was talking to, he said all of these things, and what did they respond? Verse 41. They got mad about something. They didn't get mad. Look at, think about all that Jesus has already said here. Just recap. Look at verse 35. He said, I'm the bread of life. He also said, whoever comes to me will never hunger and never thirst. Verse 38, he said, I've come down from heaven to do the will of my father. 39, he says, I will lose nothing, no one that the father gives me. Verse 40, he says, everyone who believes in me will have eternal life. Verse 40 also, he says, I will raise them up on the last day. He says all of these incredible things, but what do the Jews grumble about? What do they take issue with? It's just the fact that he said he came down from heaven. And that he was the bread that their fathers ate in the wilderness. 
Okay, Jesus just said he could give people eternal life. That's not what they got mad about. Jesus just said that he would raise people up from the dead. That's not what they got mad about. He started talking about the the food that his fathers ate. Look back at 31. We didn't read this, but they're boasting about the food that their fathers ate in the wilderness, the bread, the manna. And so now Jesus is saying, I'm that bread. And that's what makes them mad. I just think that that's so striking and so revealing of the human nature. But then Jesus, he starts losing people even more. Look at verse 47 through 59. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He wasn't helping himself out here, was he? The the Jews then said, verse 52, they disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus says to them, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Okay. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Is everyone thoroughly confused and concerned here about what Jesus is saying? Because the Jews certainly were. I I read that last verse, 59, to just remind us of something. Where was Jesus when he said all of these things? In the synagogue. He was out in public. It wasn't like a little home church. He was just gathering with his disciples and he said these challenging things. Like he said it to everyone, right? He He wasn't dumbing down his message because of his audience, He wasn't sugarcoating anything because he was afraid of offending anybody. He just said what the truth was. I think what this really was underneath, when we peel back the layers, we see that he was foreshadowing both his sacrifice on the cross that was coming soon and also remembering in the Lord's Supper, the meaning of the Lord's Supper. But all of this obviously is very shocking to the Jews and they don't know what to do with it. They don't understand how Jesus can say, eat my flesh and drink my blood. What on earth is he talking about? He says over and over in this conversation, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He's calling himself the bread, but this repetition does not seem to help their understanding. Even we find out even his own disciples didn't understand. They were confused. In verse 60, they say, this is a hard saying, Jesus. Who can listen to it? So, Jesus gives them the key. I think he gives us the key in verse 63. Skip down to verse 63. I think he gives them this key to help them avoid the very mistake that the synagogue was making. And I think for us, it's the key to help us avoid the very mistake that some people still make today. Look at verse 63. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. 
The flesh is of no avail, no advantage. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. This is the key, I think, you guys, to understand what Jesus means and what he doesn't mean in this. At the end of this long and obviously confusing conversation, Jesus just simplifies it like this. He says, guys, it's a spirit thing. It's the, I'm talking about the spirit. I think what Jesus is, is saying is he's saying, don't get hung up on my references to eating my flesh and drinking my blood. I'm speaking figuratively. I'm talking about representation here. I'm referring to a spiritual action, not a physical one. And so because it's a spiritual action, it's something that only comes about through the what? Through the Spirit. Right? If this is a spiritual thing to understand, only those with the Spirit can understand it. And we see it from this situation. What happened when Jesus said these hard things? Thousands of people walked away. Thousands of people, even people that it's described as some of his disciples turned around and walked away. But the close ones, Jesus looks at and he says, aren't you guys going to walk away too? And this is when, when Peter very refreshingly says, where else are we going to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life, right? So because it's a spiritual thing, it has to happen through the Spirit. It's not a physical reaction that takes place when somebody says some magic words. It's not a, it's not a, a physical reaction that takes place when you eat or drink something. It's a spiritual thing that happens to a person when they believe. Verse 63 protects us from the misunderstanding that people throughout the ages have fallen prey to. And verse 35 points us to the positive meaning. So go back to verse 35 for a moment. It points us to the positive meaning of eating and drinking Christ. What does that mean? There Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus gives himself to be received by eating and drinking. Well, what is this eating and drinking? That's kind of the key. That's what we want to know. I think Jesus tells us right here. He says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Eating and drinking is coming and believing. This leads us to our next point. Spiritual hunger and thirst will be quenched by Jesus. There's not a desire in your heart that will not be quenched by Jesus if that desire has been put there by God himself. Every spiritual hunger, every spiritual thirst is quenched by Jesus. The moment that you come to him and believe, you have partaken of his body and you have partaken of his blood and you will never, ever hunger or thirst again for any spiritual thing. Jesus has finished it. He has fulfilled it. He has quenched it all. John Piper puts it this way. He says, The eating and drinking refer to spiritual acts of the soul drawing near to Christ and receiving him and trusting him and having the hunger and thirst of our souls satisfied. On a very practical and, dare I say, obvious note, I think we also know that this is not a physical eating and drinking of Jesus' body and blood because at the Last Supper that was coming up, remember we were in John 6 where he talked about this, at the Last Supper that was coming up, none of the disciples came up 
and tried to take a bite of Jesus' arm. I know that sounds silly, but if, if they had that misunderstanding, we didn't see it. I think what we see is the people that were closest to Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about. And when he picked up the bread and gave it to them, he knew. They knew. When he picked up the cup and gave it to them, he knew and they knew what, what was going on and what he meant. There was no misunderstanding here. There was a clear understanding. And it was the people who were closest to Jesus that got it. They knew that it wasn't just the body and blood. There was something more that Jesus was saying. It's a spiritual thing. And this leads us into, so that's kind of what we, what we don't believe. We don't believe as Baptists, that as, as Christians, that the body and blood of Jesus are actually made manifest when we drink the wafer in the cup. We're, we don't believe that when these things pass our lips, they actually become the body and blood of Christ because Jesus died as the perfect sacrifice once and for all. And we do not have to re-sacrifice him every time we take the Lord's Supper together. That's what we don't believe. So now what do we believe about this? Where's, where's the celebration and the joy? Here's, here's where we go. Three words, remembrance, proclamation, and community. Those are the last three things we're going to talk about today. When Jesus says, this is my body, I think he, may, he means, let this representation of my body remind you of me. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember the gospel. We remember, we're called to remember. When we're gathered around the communion table, so to speak here, it's as if Jesus is saying, remember me sitting with you in fellowship. Remember me being betrayed and knowing it the whole time, knowing it all along. Remember me giving thanks to the Father who ordained it all. Remember me breaking the bread just as I willingly gave you my own body to be broken. Remember me shedding my blood for you so that you might live because I died. Remember me suffering to obtain for you all the blessings of this new covenant. Remember me raised to new life, imparting my very spirit to you. When we gather around the communion table, we're called to remember the truths of the gospel. And I pray as we do it this morning that we reflect on those wonderful truths. This is my body means also by this representation of my body, you proclaim my death for sinners until I come. The next point, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the gospel. Not only do we remember the gospel, but as we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim it. We preach it. We're reminded of it and we proclaim it. The, the bread and the cup proclaim the saving death and resurrection of Christ. In 1 Corinthians, it says, until he comes. We celebrate, we remember until he comes. We're, we're talking about when he comes back in glory. Anytime we celebrate this between now and then, we're proclaiming the truth of the gospel. The Lord's Supper is a consistent and just stark reminder that Christianity is rooted in historical fact. It is. It's not. This is not New Age spirituality. We're not getting in touch with our inner being when we do this. This is not mysticism of any kind. This is a physical reminder that Jesus actually walked this earth in a flesh and blood body. And so we proclaim this when we take the Lord's Supper 
Jesus had a body with skin on it, guys. He had a heart that pumped blood. And he died publicly on a Roman cross in horrible fashion in the place of sinners so that anyone who believes on him might be rescued from the wrath of God. He did all of this in historical detail. And he did it once and for all, for all who would believe. We're not imagining this. When we think back to these things, we're not dreaming. We're not simply cleansing our minds or focusing them on some other thing. When we remember the Lord's Supper, we are intentionally directing our minds back into history to Jesus and what we know about him from the Bible. We are focusing on a particular man and his life and death and resurrection. So in doing this, the Lord's Supper roots us time after time in the nitty-gritty details of history. It roots us there. When we think of this, when we celebrate this, when we gather around the table, may we remember the truths of the gospel and then we proclaim them as we do it. Bread and cup, body and blood, execution and death and resurrection. The actions and the meaning of all of this are rooted in what Jesus did and said the last night that he was alive. And so because of that, Jesus himself is the origin and content of the Lord's Supper every time. We're not going to ask you to think about some other person, some other event in life. We're, we're asking, we're calling our minds intentionally back to the physical and historical person of Jesus Christ and what he has done. He commanded that this supper be continued. He says, do it in remembrance of me. And so we want to be absolutely certain that he is always the focus of it. And that he is always the content of it when we come together. So that's the remembrance. That's the proclamation aspect of the Lord's Supper. And the third one is the community aspect of it. Togetherness. There is one thing that has been talked about as long as I can remember. That, that your family can do. One thing that has shown Evidence that it helps lessen behavioral problems in kids. It helps improve their grades. It helps overall physical health of everyone in, in the family. And it deepens relationships. Does anybody know what that one thing is? Family dinner. You got it. So there's health. In fact, I looked up several health websites. Medicalexpress.com has an article, whole article about it. It's not Christian slanted at all. It's just saying that there are physical evidences of the benefits of when a family has regular meals together. Okay? But the issue just isn't about eating the meal, right? Because, I mean, our, in our culture, and I'm as guilty of it as you guys, I mean, we're flying through McDonald's drive through tossing chicken nuggets at the kids, you know, in the back seat. It's not about just eating together because, you know, we're all in the same van. We're eating, but it's not really together at all. The issue is more than just eating. Every biological organism has to eat. That's not the issue here. Plenty of people eat and eat all by themselves. It's not about eating. What is it? The issue is eating together. The issue is receiving the Lord's Supper, celebrating communion together. A family dinner creates connections. And guys, as Christians, we ought to know an awful lot about this in the body of Christ. We ought to know about what this looks like. The Corinthian church, though, 
If you flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Corinthian church had blown it here. They had missed the boat on this aspect of the Lord's Supper. As if they hadn't missed it on a lot of other things, they had messed this up seriously. They did not take the Lord's Supper seriously. They took this beautiful and joyful event given to us by Christ to memorialize Him, and they had twisted it into an opportunity to serve themselves and not care about anybody else. What a sad state for the church to be in. They were using the Lord's Supper to feed their own individual appetites rather than caring for another. And Paul put them on notice for it. Paul had already told them in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 24, he said, let no one seek the good of himself, his own good. Instead, let him seek the good of his neighbor. Brothers and sisters in Christ, specifically, believers in the church, then in connection with the Lord's Supper, he says in chapter 11, verse 33, so then my brothers, when you come together to eat, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, communion. He says, when you come together to eat communion, wait for one another. We wait for one another. And he's just not talking about wait till everybody gets some of it. He's talking about in spirit. Wait for your brothers and sisters. Do this thing together. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we experience the gospel together. That's the third of this, the togetherness of the Lord's Supper. Not only do we remember and proclaim it, we experience it together. What a blessed thing. Paul clearly is concerned with the together aspect of the Lord's Supper. I don't know if you know um, this at all, but the Southern Baptist Convention has a ethics and religious liberty commission. And the president of that is a guy named Russell Moore. Uh, but he says this about communion. He says, in the Lord's Supper, we confess ourselves to be sinners together. And we proclaim together the gospel that restores us to right fellowship with God and with one another. We experience Jesus in our midst, serving us the kind of meal that connects us with the upper room in Jerusalem past and with the marriage feast of the new Jerusalem future. Guys, the church is more than just a group of like-minded individuals. Paul never talks about the church that way, but you know how he does talk about the church? He talks about the church as a household of brothers and sisters. He talks about the church as a body made up of different parts, but all connected by the same nervous system of Jesus as the head. Paul told the Corinthian church, he said, guys, your divisions when you get together are ridiculous. It's like that parent who gets a report of their kid just doing something crazy. That's ridiculous, he says. There's some suffering from hunger because others are gl being gluttons. You guys are being ridiculous, he says. And he says, you guys who are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, you're being ridiculous. He says, don't do that. This is the better way. He says, seek the good of your brothers and sisters first. Do this thing together. Honor the Lord. Remember Christ. Proclaim his death and resurrection together. So as we gather around the communion table, we're being called not just to a group of people that look and act and think like us, brothers and sisters. This is a different kind of community. It's a kind of community that can't just be ripped apart by petty disagreements and fights. We can't be because we're, we're the same. We're the body. 
And this is a physical representation of that truth. Understanding the purpose of the elements themselves, as well as personal reflection, when we talk about the Lord's Supper, these things are right and they're good, but I, don't, I think we have to make sure we never forget that part of this too is the fact that he is calling us as a body to come together as we celebrate this. Paul also told the church in Corinth earlier in chapter 10, I believe, he said, listen to this, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all, for we all partake of the one bread. We have the same leader, the same God, the same Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when we gather for communion, we, we celebrate, we remember his death. We proclaim the gospel and we see again time and time again that we need each other because we are part of the same body, period. One last thing before we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. It's right to be reminded of these things, to think about and feel the weight of the Lord's Supper, to think about our relationships with brothers and sisters and more importantly, our relationship and fellowship with God. It's right to think about these things. But I, I don't think that our only response when we celebrate the Lord's Supper should be sadness. I don't. I think there's more to it when we come to the communion table. Are we coming with the right attitude? Some of the text from uh, 1 Corinthians 11 gets into that. And Paul is saying there's people that are sick among you because you're doing it wrong. You're not doing this in the right way, with the right heart, with the right attitude. We have to evaluate these things. It's important to our relationship with the Lord and to our relationship with one another that we do reflect on that when we come to the table. But remembering the Lord's Supper, supper I think, should also cause us to glory in the cross and revel in the fact that Jesus did all of this for people like you and me. For sinners undeserving of sacrifice, who are reckless and disobedient to God. And yet we know, Paul says to the Roman church, he says, Christ died for the ungodly at just the right time. Brothers and sisters, when we come to salvation, we don't bring anything to God. Well, I take that back. We bring one thing, our sin. That's what we bring. And Jesus, by, by granting to us belief and repentance, we take our eyes off of ourselves, we cast them on the Savior, and he restores us to a relationship with God through his death on the cross. So when we gather around the Lord's table, there's, there's, there may be tears. There may be tears when we do this kind of a thing. But I hope... I hope that some of them are tears of joy simply because God has given this as a gift to the church to remember, to proclaim, <laughs> and to celebrate together. And while our earthly relationships are at times strained, they're at times uh, torn, they're at times uh, difficult, this is an opportunity 
for God's church to set those things aside, to overcome by the blood of Jesus, and not just set them aside to pick up at a later date, but to bury them under the blood. Um, As we sing, uh, this would be a great opportunity to reflect on these things, to think about Jesus' death on the cross for you and me, undeserving as we are, to think about how this affects our relationships with one another, but then also think about the joy that it is to experience the gospel in this together. And like I said, there may be tears, but I pray that some of them are tears of joy in what God has done and is doing in our lives.